Welcome to the Sounds of the World. We are your hosts, Hillary and Bill. Together, we're going to travel around the world to discover new music, discuss musical topics, and interview fascinating people. Our world is a buffet of music, and it is time to eat. Welcome back, everybody, to the Sounds of the World podcast. Uh, Today, we get a talk with a a great young composer, um, originally from Texas. Uh, He now lives in Louisiana, where he's finishing up his PhD at Louisiana State University, studying with Mara Gibson, who was a previous guest. Um, His music is fascinating and extremely entertaining and energetic. Um, It's imaginative and beautiful. Uh, I, I know him personally because we both went to LSU together for a little bit uh, and so this will be great to talk to him again and I'm sure check out his new music and you'll love it. Uh, we're going to talk to him about his life, where he grew up, uh, his music of course, his album the Four Idols and then some of his newest adventures uh, and uh, how his music is coping with all of the COVID restrictions. So um, please welcome to the podcast. Uh, Oh, God, I can't believe my brain. Uh, Austin <laughs> Franklin. <laughs> oh, my God, my brain was just like. <laughs> hey. That was so nice. You said great composer. That's, can I use that in my bio? Yeah. Definitely. That's, definitely. that's what you open with. So. <laughs> well, hey, guys. So, yeah, please welcome Austin Franklin. There we go. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> I'll cut that other crap out. So. <laughs> so welcome welcome man it's good to see you and talk to you again yeah yeah it's nice to keep up with a couple of people that used to go to lamar and that i, I know from, from that area and you guys are doing awesome things so glad that oh. i'm just part of it oh well thanks <laughs> yeah thank you man it's it's great it's been a lot of fun but uh it's we've had a wonderful honor to talk to some amazing people and so uh, we just like adding names to that list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, let's just start kind of like basic off. Uh, like, where are you from and uh, how did you get into music? So I kind of have an interesting relationship with music and that I've sort of, I, I'm constantly in a state of falling into it. So I, I, I didn't grow up in a particularly musical household. Uh, my mom bought a, a piano for us, for me and my sister, to she wanted us to learn when we were very young, probably four or five, um, and I absolutely hated it. I took piano lessons for a year, and then I quit, and I I, I play piano now, um, and I'm kind of regretful, but um, I really didn't get involved with music um, until I was in high school, maybe ninth or tenth grade. I joined the band there as a percussionist, um, and that's sort of where my passion first started, it's where the, the Kindle began. Um, and even going to, to college, and this is why I say I was sort of falling into it because I really had no desire to go to school for music. I sort of did because I didn't want to get a job and I didn't feel like I, I didn't feel like excited enough about any other degree um, in school. So I, I went for music um, and I even spent a year just kind of not really you know, floating aimlessly, not really knowing what I wanted to put my, you know, efforts into. Um, and it wasn't until probably the end of my sophomore year of college. Um, so I, I, around that time, I was in the drum line there. I went to Lamar University. Uh, it's in Beaumont, Texas. Um, and I, I lived up until that point in Jasper, Texas, um, just a couple hours away. And uh, I, I didn't compose at all up until that point. But I, had really bad technique while playing the drums. And so I, I hurt my ulnar nerve really badly. Um, it's the nerve that runs basically from your pinky all the way down your arm and past your elbow. Um, oh, and it makes it so that any sort of motion with your elbow at all kind of, it makes your whole arm shoot up with pain. Mine wasn't that severe. I didn't have to get surgery or anything, but I had to stop playing. And so it was kind of at that point, I was like, well, I'm already in school. I don't want to, go for anything else. So I just picked kind of another music path uh, and composition was, it was something I sort of peddled with, but nothing um, serious. And so I, I did that for a, a semester or so. 
Um, and the, the moment that I, I realized that this is like something I want to do and devote myself to full time, I was in a lesson. Um, it was actually one of my first couple of lessons with the composition faculty up there. His name is Dr. Nick Rissman. Um, <clears throat> and I brought in this little piece for solo marimba. Uh, it was nothing fancy. Uh, I think it was in like F major entirely. Um, and he, he asked me if he could like change a couple of things on the score. And I said, yeah, sure. And he started writing accidentals. He didn't change notes. Um, and back then I, I, you know, I wasn't quite sure what he was doing, but he just added a couple of flats. And he basically modulated, he added a flat to the A, B, E, so kind of like a C minor or E flat major sort of thing. And I just remember hearing my own piece of music played back for me in this entirely different way. And I just couldn't understand it at the time. And so I was just, I was so thrilled that there was this whole other world out there that was right in front of me and I just hadn't found out about yet. And so I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. This doesn't hurt my body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's do this. And so I've kind of never looked back since. So I, I kind of, I got started late. I mean, towards the end of my sophomore year in uh, my undergraduate degree, when I really started composing. So, and then, yeah, I eventually graduated I, um, at LSU now. I went there for my master's um, and I stayed on. Uh, I'm getting my PhD now in experimental music and digital media. So a, a slight shift away from traditional classical composition and more towards the, um, the, the aspects of composition that intersect with technology. I think we have all kind of come at composition that same way where we, uh, you know, we were doing something else. Like I did piano and Hillary's a vocalist. And then we kind of, as we were going, we kind of made a slight pivot to the left or whatever. And all of a sudden we're like, oh, we, this, this thing I'm kind of playing with a little bit in composition is really a lot of fun. And I, I actually like doing that a lot more than what I'm having to do with my instrument, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting hearing about how people fall into it because they all do it in different ways. Usually I, I would be willing to bet for most people, it's one of their first performances. First time they actually hear mm -hmm. their music live. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was, it, for me and, and at Lamar, the composition program was really small and that there were two students. There's me and someone else. Woo! And uh, it, oh it, being, <laughs> yeah. it being Southeast Texas, it's, it's a really um, music education heavy area. Mm -hmm. So that's really oh, yeah. the only sort of like social cultural like thing that exists for music if you go to school for music education you become a band director and you work with high school and middle school children so there's not really an avenue for composers to really get out there and so mm -hmm. i didn't really have a lot of performances during my mm -hmm. undergrad i had uh, i mean a couple i had a recital but that was the ma big main one but um so for me it was you know it was that one instance with my professor and then and thereafter i i, I think uh, Nick Rissman, he's he's very brilliant. Yeah, he's, he's never put his music out there in the traditional way. He doesn't apply for for things, for grants, competitions, that kind of thing. He's, he's more reclusive, but uh, his his music's incredibly energetic and fascinating. Yeah, I, I mean that's kind of how it was for me. I in my my school was a very small state school, and I think there was only three or four people who were actually taking composition lessons you know they didn't have a degree or anything it was just like our percussion teacher actually offered composition lessons to anyone if they were interested and so uh i was like oh okay let's let's just see what happens and then i had uh i had a piece performed on my recital that i played with a friend of mine that included percussion and then i had a i worked with the string teacher and the conductor of the civic symphony and they played a little string piece i wrote and that was it that's the only recordings i'd ever had so i was just like oh okay this is but i got like excited about it in music theory when our teacher required us to write like okay we're going to talk about 12 tone rows and you have to write a piece for about a minute or so on 12 tone rows now we're going to talk about this now we're going to talk about this and you have to write a small piece and i was like 
this is cool. Like, this is fun. Like, I can do this, this you know? my favorite part of theory. <laughs> exactly. Screw, screw Bach. We don't need to write more corrals. Let's go back to this. So, I mean, that's that's how I fell into it. And it was still kind of surprised. Like, I even got a PhD having only had two performances <laughs> when I started. <laughs> And you ended up having your recital, um, I think the last, was it your master's, or you didn't have a recital for your master's, if I remember correctly. And so you had a big one for your PhD. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, you know, by then it had been quite a few performances and, you know, pieces performed out of the U.S. and stuff. But it was just like, to look back in hindsight and see, like, where you started and then where you're at now, it's it's always kind of invigorating. Like, oh, okay. Maybe I kind of know what I'm talking about or what I'm doing, you know, like maybe I'm not so bad after all. <laughs> well, that was like for me getting into my, I just kind of had this feeling. It was like, I, I'd always kind of dinked around on the piano as a kid and like, just always found this like thrill of being like, Oh, I can control how this goes. And I think it needs to go this way. And I want it to go this way. And um yeah I went to the University of Montana I had I think I graduated with two of us in composition it was me and another kid made it made it <laughs> I think we started with like <laughs> 15 in my freshman year and then yeah slowly whittled it down but yeah it's it's always cool when you have those those moments that stick with you um either you hear a piece or you like you get to hear your own piece performed and it's just magical. You're like, holy cow, this is invigorating. I need to do more of it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely energizing. And you've had a piece published too, right, Austin? More than one or just one? Yeah, I've had a few. So it, a funny story. Um, well, so I have a couple published through Sea Island and they're percussion pieces. I actually have one coming out uh, in a month or two. It's a percussion quartet. But um, yeah, so the, the couple that I had published previously, um, they were my first two or three pieces at Lamar. I performed them, recorded them myself there. Um, and the, the percussion professor there at the time uh, was was very um, helpful. And, and he had come from a, a much bigger school and he teaches at, uh, I believe it's Kent State now. But mm -hmm. so he's he's more like in the, the new music sphere and kind of knows how it works. So he was very encouraging, uh, one of the more encouraging faculty members out there. And so he told me just to submit it. Um, and I didn't even know you could just get on a website and <laughs> drop a link in and say, here, look at this. Um, yeah. So I just kind of started doing that. And like I said, like my professor, like my composition professor didn't do that. He didn't apply to competitions or contests. So I had no clue that this even existed. So, um, but I was lucky enough to have a couple of my early pieces published, um, which is nice to have when you're younger, I suppose. Um, but yeah, so a couple through C. Allen. Do you feel like having been published at kind of a younger age, it might have put you like ahead of other people or not necessarily ahead, but like um, people would have expected a lot more from you? What do you mean? Would have expected more from me? Or like they, they might expect more from you because you are a quote published composer, you know? Um. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I, I so everyone has their ways of, of dealing with this sort of thing, either rejection or imposter syndrome. And and Jennifer Jolly, you've had her on your podcast. She's got this blog and so everyone's got their own mechanism. And mine is I just sort of don't think about any of it. <laughs> nice. I, I, love I, think that. I, I mean, and we there's a good example that everyone can probably resonate with. And it's like showing your parents one of your first couple pieces of music. And they're always very supportive, but there's always this tinge of like, <laughs> like, but they, they like it because you did it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's, there's a little bit of that, that you can just sense kind of. And so one of my mechanisms is I just, I mean, if someone tells me congratulations or they, they really like a piece of mine, like I, it resonates with me and I really care about it, but I, I tend not to think about what other people think about my music at all and that, that's one of the things that just helps me to keep writing mm. otherwise I, I mean if I if I feel insecure about it in any way then I'll just stop and I, I've kind of figured that out the hard way because we all have gone through periods where we just can't 
write notes, we can't make the right decisions. Uh, and so that's, that's one of mine is I just, I don't even read like rejection letters half the time. Um, in fact, a lot of them go to spam, which means I miss acceptance letters. Oh, no. too. <laughs> I like I've missed things before. I, I just go, Oh, okay. Well, this is awesome. But I mean, I just, I can't let it, you know, just can't let it affect me, I guess. Yeah. I really like but everyone's that. different. I really struggled with rejection and like said the imposter syndrome and like entering my master's I think when I sat down for my first lesson my <laughs> poor Ryan my, my teacher was probably like who the hell is this chick she's completely like fried and nervous because I remember just being like I wrote something but I don't know blah blah blah, blah, blah. and he just was like take a deep breath like nothing is screwed here like show me what you got like he was so chill and it was like the exact mindset I needed but so it's like otherwise you just get hung up on every single note and every decision and you can talk yourself out of anything so i don't know i like that i think i'm gonna have to steal that and add it to my list of tools <laughs> yeah please do it's it's liberating oh so you, you came to lsu and then uh your so your album four idols is that that's um that came during or prior to LSU? So this actually came out um, in December. So I wrote it the, the last half of uh, 2020. Okay. So it's very recent. And this is just another thing. I It's something I've, and we all have these, like these dreams, like I want to write a piece for, you know, five orchestras at the same time. Like, like some like, you know, and one of mine is I just really wanted to write an album. I just wanted to have one out to go through the process and just to say that I have one um, that, that seemed important to me. So yeah, last year I just said, well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write one. I had no clue what I was going to write it about. So the, the design and the, the concept was sort of emergent throughout the process. Um, but it, it came together really nicely. It's a, it's an electroacoustic album. So it's mostly, um, me performing live and processing sounds and improvising. So it, it's very much a, um, self-gratifying effort. But uh, it, I've, I've gotten really great response about it from it. Um, so I, I'm at least glad that some people out there enjoy it. And there's a, there's a large experimental community um, online if you know where to find them. And, and they really love this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. What I always found great about the electroacoustic community is like the support and the encouragement is like endless. And I, it's such a like, it's like, I don't know. It's like they won't even. I feel like in classical, like traditional written classical music, like you can get rejected and shut down pretty easily. But um, electroacoustic is so, I mean, like the ceiling is the limit on that. Like everything gets so wide open. The ceiling's the limit. The sky's the limit on it. <laughs> and as long, like maybe someone will tweak your technique, but really it's kind of just like this really enjoyable experience into somebody's imagination and what they can do with, like how they can reproduce that in sound. So yeah, and I, I kind of, I felt the same way listening to your album. I'm like, oh, this is so fun to listen to and just to, like, hear what other people are thinking. And, like, I don't know, it's crazy because it's, like, I feel like I could never come up with sounds like that. But if I were to do my own album, it would just be as equally, like, creative and weird and unique and fun and cool. And no, I just yeah, it's like I, I've gotten a couple of responses similar. And what I say is, well, I can't come up with those sounds either. And that's why I improvise. And that's... <laughs> And and it's kind of, I mean, most of it was, it, a couple of the tracks were literally me recording like two, three hours straight, and then just picking out the best seven, six minutes or so. Oh, that's cool. Um, and, it, that. and it's and it's interesting because people sort of, they create their own narrative and things. And that, that's something that I've learned just through trial and error. And especially with experimental music, people, they, they appreciate the effort and they're willing to give things, you know, a, a try and to, and to think critically about them if they if they expect to be confused yeah front. Um, and and that's not a bad thing I, I think it's actually really interesting because people I mean they and we're I mean as composers you we've all had people come up to us and say oh this piece sounds like you know winter or this sound and you're like well that wasn't what I was thinking at all but I'm glad that you <laughs> thank you <laughs> but it's a really powerful thing and I, I think it, it's it's extra potent with with electronic music yeah, I had a piece for bl flute and bassoon, and 
like one person came out to me and it's like, it, it made me think of like a father and a son fighting and they talk and then like their ideas switch. Like the son takes the ideas of the father and the father takes the son's ideas. And I was like, interesting. Okay. And then literally the person right after is like, I, I didn't know what was going on. I thought it was going to be this. And I'm just like, okay. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> One of the other composers, uh, the other composer uh, that I was colleagues with while I was at Lamar, he wrote this piece called Night in Sahara. And it was for flute and piano or something like that. And he had someone come up to him afterwards and say that, oh, well, this piece reminds me of like wintertime. And he was like, did you even, it's Night in Sahara, like, I get that it gets cold at night in the Sahara, but it gets literally about the desert. So I, I just think it's so interesting. I, I'll never forget that. It's just, you know, we can, we can imagine and, and create our own stories. And that is partly the, um, you know, so the album is based conceptually around Francis Bacon's Four Idols of the Mind, which are kind of a, um, there are ways in which people can rationalize their way to falsities. Mm, okay. Um, so he he was one of the first people to establish some semblance of the the scientific method. It's called the Baconian method. Excuse me. Um, and so he was he was a big proponent of at the time of not believing everything that our senses and our and our rational capacities tell us is true. So he was he was always challenging these sorts of things, and and so the the album kind of lends itself to that too, which is you know our we can all hear you know. We can hear winter or springtime in any piece we imagine um, if if we just hear it the right way or we have the the right set of biases. So, mm-hmm. but that was sort of my um, was sort of the the kind of the glue that hold that holds it all together. Now I love that because I feel like especially well, I was I was thinking as I was listening to your music, I was like, this is the perfect like meditation music. Because you kind of just like that. And that's something I love about um, electronic music is you can just really let your mind wander. And like, it's like for me, like listening and like it just evokes all these different like images and emotions and weird memories that I didn't, you know, and that which is very much like meditating where you just get all these random thoughts are like just dumping out of your head and you're just trying to like watch them and not think about it. And um that's uh, that. That's really cool that that was kind of like your go, your idea for the piece is like, hey, you can really ascribe anything you want to this. <laughs> yeah, and so that's well, the the narrative component was it was kind of more for me. I'm not sure I like. You, you can't expect everyone to take the time to read up about the the subject and hope mm-hmm. to understand it in the same way you do, and yeah. I, I mean that's fair. But so it, it was mostly for me as like a guiding force. Um, and especially like metaphorically, I, I did some things that were, um, that kind of grappled onto some of these ideas in the electronics. So there was the one, it's the reconstruct, it's the one of crystal glasses and live electronics. Um, and so this is based on the four idols of the, or idols of the theater. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm kind of blanking. There's so many of them. There's like five main ones. <laughs> I didn't prepare for this, so. <laughs> putting you on the spot <laughs> but they're they're essentially um falsities and logical inconsistencies within institutions mm-hmm. um and and he's not very revolutionary francis bacon in a lot of his writing he's more analytical but in in this one instance of this theater I, I believe it's the idols of the theater but he's pretty revolutionary he basically says that you just have to tear all of these institutions down because they're never going to repair themselves internally mm. which you take that for, for what you will. But on the electronic side, um, I literally just sampled the sounds of the crystal glasses, sampled a hit and you know they, they resonate, maybe one mm-hmm. note's five seconds long or something like that. And then I just cut it up into a bunch of pieces and then rearranged them. And that was sort of a, a way for me to structure the process of creation around the narrative. Mm-hmm. So like actually reconstructing the sound, dismantling it, changing it externally, and then the, the production, the end result is is kind of what you hear, which is sort of a jumbled mess of gong sounds and high frequencies, that sort of thing. So, oh, DSP is so cool. <laughs> um, so what? Okay, I'm gonna nerd out for a second. What do you use a DAW or do you use like Max or? 
do you program or how do you how do you synthesize your music so for the it depends for four idols specifically uh, i made an instrument for each of the pieces so like mm -hmm. a digital instrument um and so for reconstruct in particular i i used max and i made a, a max patch and had a couple of controllers um that nice. did different things oh i miss programming this is like making me want to download max <laughs> again you should it, it it's so much fun i've Whenever I started learning, I, I, I had kind of a hard learning curve at first because I'd never programmed before. Oh, and, and it feels so far over your head. I remember just sitting and like, I think it was like Music 110 and they're just going through and I'm like, can you slow down and explain what like a sound, like what a sound bite is? <laughs> like, I just felt so dumb. <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm not like one of those people that's bad at math. Like I pick up on things pretty quickly, but I, I realized that that didn't help me at all. Like it, it's not about math. <laughs> You don't right. like it's not about mathematical expressions. It's it's purely logic, and that's mm -hmm. then that's something that if you're not used to, it's it's a it you have to kind of retrain yourself to think about these things. And and Max is great because it literally is visual, so it's top to bottom. Yeah. And, um, so you can connect things, and it's really fun. But but yeah, so for that one, I made uh, an instrument. There were a couple of pieces that I actually. Um, well, one in particular, um, Mirage and Programma. I, I was working on another project with uh, some push-pull solenoids. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and I hooked up a microphone, uh, or set up a microphone right next to the solenoids and hooked my drum kit up to the solenoids so that they were beating on the cymbals. And then I just fed that back out of my speakers and back into the microphone and just, I almost like, I, know, I probably like scared my cats half to death. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but and so the, the the feedback gets used a lot throughout the album too, and that's another. There's, there's another idol, and I I won't blank on the name of this one, but it's the idols of the cave. Um, and the best way to think about these is that they're like they're internal and they're they're individualistic. So if you imagine being in a cave, hearing yourself talk, you're only hearing yourself, but you're hearing reflections of your own voice. So your, your voice is being amplified because you're in a cave. And, and so the, the idea there is that if you don't ever challenge your beliefs, if you allow them to just exist within your own mind, then they amplify. Um, and then they, they reinforce biases and, and create dogma. And so the feedback was kind of a, another metaphor that I used throughout the album. And of course, for the album, I put a limiter uh, on. So it was somewhat pleasing. Oh, that's fascinating. I love that philosophical, you know, just that belief of like, yeah, if you're only echoing, I feel like, and we won't touch the politics of this, but I feel like especially <laughs> it's a very big theme in our country right now is I believe this, you believe that I'm right, you're wrong. And the other person's thinking I'm right, you're wrong. And, oh, that's an interesting question. <clears throat> I really love that. And it's, it's even more interesting than that in that the, the people who have like taking the time to, or at least read the program notes or the, the album cover or whatever, and that they, they understand the, the kind of concepts on a, on a basic level. They, they talk to me about it as, and they, they always approach it politically because you can't approach anything <laughs> apolitically anymore. But right. they always approach it as though I'm speaking to them and their beliefs directly. They're like, see, this is what I mean. Like, you know, this happens to people. And it's like, the, it's it's even further proof that this happens to everyone, that people reason yes. correctly, and that it's it's more important that we search for truth rather than, you know, yeah. or, or whatever. But I, I just think it's interesting because everyone has a different perspective. Oh, um, and we're all right. And, well, you know, and <laughs> I don't believe that, but it's like you, you can easily fall into that trap of like, well, yeah, I am right. Everyone else is shit. I, my thoughts are the only thoughts <laughs> yeah i really liked the witch hunt sections uh in particular especially the trial how did you go about writing the trial that's what i this really want to know this is the the one with well you you actually you freaked me out about this so right after <laughs> for everyone who doesn't know <clears throat> right after the album was released the witch hunt it's a three movement work for Disclavier. Um, and so for this one, I actually, um, there's, there's a video of the Disclavier and I'm, I'm sitting slightly off screen, but I have a, a MIDI keyboard. Um, and essentially I've created, I created a sampler 
in which I can play whatever notes I want to on this keyboard, and then I can hit a button. And the, those note values and velocity values get sent to the disc clavier, and then it randomly selects pitches from there and plays those in the disc clavier. And it plays them at the velocity that I've played them at. So I can play some loud, some soft. Um, and so all of that gets reflected on the, the disc clavier. And so it's a three movement work that kind of does those sort of things. And the, really the only thing I'm controlling, uh, I, I played all the, the notes pre-recording. So I knew essentially the general tonality. And so the only thing I'm really doing is I'm pressing other buttons that go to different sections. Mm -hmm. um, but during the, the second movement, it gets very, very soft. And one of the interesting things is when you, and I didn't know this before I had experimented, I, I had a day to record on the, the disc clavier. It's, it, the disc clavier was, um, it's owned by the piano studio at the university and the EMDM department was using it for something else. So I had like a day. So I worked this up like all night and then went and recorded it the very next day, set up cameras and it took me all night. Um, but one thing I found out whenever I actually got to test stuff on the disc clavier is that whenever they, it plays notes at a very, very low velocity, so very, very quietly, mm. is you can actually hear the, the actions of the piano louder than the notes themselves. Yeah. And I said, well, this has got to be something that I write into the piece. And so I created a whole other movement about it in which there's these kind of like sparse, high-pitched tones, and they sort of resonate like bells. But then underneath is this sort of like eighth note walking and groove that you can kind of hear. So it's very like textural and percussive. Mm -hmm. And right after the I released the album, Bill listened to it <laughs> and he messaged me and he said, hey, like I can hear this drum set or a drum line uh, in the middle of the second movement. And I figured because I recorded it on a Saturday, there was a football game happening. I mean, it was totally possible. So I, oh. I freaked out about it. And I went back and I listened to it like <laughs> 10 times on headphones and speakers. And then it took me a second to realize he was actually talking about the, like the rhythm. The, yeah, the, the piano action. And so I messaged him back. I said, no, it's actually this. But it was just, it was really soft. <laughs> it, for anyone who, who's ever played in a drum line, it sounds like, you can hear a full drum line doing eights on a eight on a hand, distant, like in the distant background. It's just like doo, doo. you're like, oh, what is going on? Like I I cranked up the volume all the way on my headphones and like pressed them against my ears. I was like, what is that? The drum line LSU. So I was like, I have to talk to Austin. Oh, this picture like staying up to three and like I've got to crack this. I thought I messed up big time, too. If you're not expecting, and especially in just the audio version, if, if all you're hearing is piano, then those sounds are very foreign. On the on the video of the piece, it's a lot clearer because I have a couple of cameras and one zooms in, and so you can actually see all of the different hammers. Kind of, it's like spider-like watching it all move, but it's a, it's a little less clear. Um, yeah, just listening to the, to the audio. Yeah, but it's it's a really cool piece still. I mean, I even with the the ghost drumline i mean uh it's it's the high kind of like like you said a spider kind of walking around on the higher end of the piano or the the keys and stuff it it creates such an amazing atmosphere yeah thank you and this one has another sort of metaphorical tie to the four idols i mean think about the witch hunt it was literally based on the the witch hunt trials in early modern europe and so this was an example of which an entire group of thousands of people believed something that was completely false and acted upon it. So that was kind of another uh, metaphor. It was, it was more literal and the, the piece is more exciting because the, the first movement's very fast and pointillistic. It's kind of like a chase scene, kind of what it was supposed to be like anyways. And then the third movement's black magic. Yeah, so the, 
I, I had a vision for the piece and there's some imagery that I was following, but to the pursuit, you know, people are chasing this witch or this just perfectly like reasonable woman who's not a witch. Right. Uh, the second movement is the trial, meaning that they, they catch her, she's behind bars or wherever. Um, and then the third movement, black magic. And I said, well, this would be kind of fun if I could just make it seem as though she evaporated through the bars. Uh, and so the, the third movement is the only one that's not rhythmic. It's not on a sort of like grid-like kind of pulse. Um, so it, it's, it's very fluid. Um, it's also the, the densest section of the piece. So I, I think at one point I have like, I, I tried to count. I didn't actually like, I don't know if this number is exact, but I, I tried to stop the video at particular places. But there's one place where I'm pretty sure there's like 50 something notes being played at once. Wow. And so... I mean that I'll take that as a, as an achievement. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's uh, one thing I love about uh, what is it? New technology in you know, mixed with music is, or instruments at least is the kind of things you can do as a composer to create all these different um, textures and atmospheres. And, you know, you think about what did, you know, even Penderecki or, uh, you know, Ligeti try to do when they just had acoustic instruments and all the things that they made, you know, and now because of technology, you can have 50 plus keys going off at the same time on a disc clavier, you know, it's so cool. Yeah, no, I think so too. Um, and, and it's interesting. Um, well, the, so the witch hunt, it's a, it's one of the pieces that I think was, most well received on the album so i actually i had it reviewed and the guy who reviewed it um basically said this is the only piece that stands out as kind of <laughs> like it doesn't seem to go with the rest of the album and he said just because it's so much better than everything else in the album yeah i mean i'm <laughs> i thought it was funny but i you know i think in, in in a lot of ways he's right and it's because it's it's the most direct Mm. an intentional piece on the album and that the, right. the title is is like we all know about witch hunts mm -hmm. generally we might not know you know much about the history of them we know that people thought other people were witches back in the day well and it can mean other things than just literally going after witches you know well and the music has some sort of contextual clues like you know it's very fast the first movement's very fast it's very um organic and it's very chaotic and so this mm -hmm. is like a sign that oh witch hunt something fast is happening like like these things are they're they're context clues that are easier to put together and create a whole lot of um it was also a three movement work it was the longest one so it does have this it has a much kind of larger formal arc right um but yeah, you know, it's it's kind of interesting, and this is something that you know part of my album is about. But I'm I'm interested in how people understand things, and and one of the ways that they do it clearly is just I mean through reading the title of your piece, mm -hmm. and and I think that that's one of the reasons why most people gravitate towards that piece is because the title's so much clearer. Like, what does reconstruct mean? What does programma mean? I'm not going to Google it. So, and what is dripping? What is dripping? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, and so I think that these are these are easy things for for people to put together very quickly, uh, and, and it resonates that much faster. And so, uh, but you know, even some of my favorite works are, are like that too. The, the titles are very direct, even mm -hmm. if the 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 music is is maybe less clear, but the mm -hmm. the title sort of guides you back home. Well, yeah. Give you a, like you said, it can serve as like a know, like a landing board for a starting springboard for like your imagination as you listen. I mean, you can ascribe whatever you want to, but if you, as you were talking earlier about the piece in the desert, like your mind's if you read that title and then listen to it, you're probably gonna like set yourself in the desert and think about it, which is fine too. And I think I think it's fun when you listen without the title and you go, huh, I think this, and then you hear the title and you go, oh, well now I think this and it really gives your mind a lot to play with. Yeah, one of these days I'm gonna I'm gonna write a piece of music. Uh, it's, it'll be titled something like I don't know, Day at the Beach or Ocean or whatever, and it won't have a single water sound in it. 
<laughs> It'll just sound like fire. I love that. I think that'd be great. <clears throat> uh, but it, things, things like that would be very interesting because some people would still hear water or they would associate things, maybe a campfire at the beach. Like maybe that's a fond memory someone had. And so they would use that to connect to water or the title, something like that. But this is something I'm, I'm very interested in. Yeah. And I mean, um, so Reconstruct is also getting a performance too, right? Another performance. Yeah, that was the one that was accepted to the New York City Electroacoustic Music Festival. That's and yeah, that's really cool. Uh, having been there, it, you did you go last time we went? Uh, the university. Yeah. No, I didn't. Oh, okay. Um, but I mean, it's a, that's a big that's a big festival. You know what I mean? I mean, they had us at you had to be at NYU and things and. Uh, I think you said this year they're going to be live streamed, right? It'll be totally virtual, yeah. Okay, but still, I mean, this is people are going to be watching all over the world, right? So, yeah, I mean, I'm 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 still excited, and the good thing about that is it'll I'll be actually well playing the video, but the the video component to the actual piece will be presented, um, and I, I think that that's so a lot of the pieces on the album because they were improvised, and I did create my own instrument setup. I also recorded video, so mm. if anyone wants to see the videos to Witch Hunt or any of these other pieces, they're on YouTube. But the the videos are a little more interesting, especially if you're kind of more interested in the technical side of it. But um, and clearly at the the festival, they they are so they're going to perform the video, <laughs> right? <laughs> but still, congratulations! That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And then you also just had another performance of a piece, right? Like uh, you had a performance of music you just wrote. Is that right? Um, yeah, this, I have been incredibly fortunate in that I can't make heads or tails of what I'm doing and what I've got going on anymore. <laughs> and I, I mean, to me that, that this is such a great thing because I'm like kind of scatterbrained all of the time, but it, it just means that you know, hard work is paying off and and mm -hmm. some people enjoy my music and that's that's really what's important yeah that's exciting that's awesome but yeah this uh this past uh monday so a little over a week ago i had a show premiered with the uh it was a collaboration with the experimental music and digital media department and the physical theater department at lsu and so we actually got together um and collaborated on music and, and choreographing uh, aerial silk performances Oh, and then we cool. premiered that on Monday, um, and they actually we got rigged. Uh, we had the university arborist come out and tell us which trees we could drill into and wrap silks around, and so we wow. picked a couple of, of really sturdy branches and hung aerial silks from them, and then had people perform them. The the performance was also late at night, so we had a couple of projectors that were oh, that's cool. facing upwards towards the canopy and they projected moving images and stuff so it was it was really uh spectacular and the dancing the choreography everything was it, it came together really well despite the the whole weekend before so it premiered last monday we only had the sunday right before that to rehearse oh. uh, the following saturday friday thursday it was completely rained out we we thought we were gonna have to postpone but so we had one day of rehearsal for like three hours uh, and then everything just fell right into place and usually with electronic music something breaks right that's that's like a it's just like such a given like everyone just expects it we or someone forgets a computer cable or something you know or your computer freezes or the yeah. <laughs> yeah or all of a sudden the Pornhub drum beat starts and you're like no no yeah, <laughs> yeah god forbid <laughs> But not this time. This is this is one of those times that uh, a miracle truly happened. So wow, <laughs> everyone needs a win in twenty twenty one, right? And the well, the title of the show was "Light Pushes Through," so it was Love light, it. light and dark. These kind of archetypes, and and for for a lot of people, especially the people who kind of came up with the conceptual framework for the show, they they really leaned into COVID and social justice and some of these things is like analogs to light and dark. So mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, 
that it, it really was a win. And for a lot of the aerial uh, aerialists, it was their first time performing in over a year. Wow. It's, oh. Yeah, so they, they have quite a bit of restrictions. Um, so they actually had to, um, they had to use their own silks. So in each of the, the rigging spots, they had to drop the rig down, take the previous person's silk off, replace it. Because uh, wow. they weren't allowed to use other people's silks because of COVID. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it was a lot of extra work, and and they were under a lot of kind of restrictions and guidelines. So, but they, yeah, they did a great job, and they were all extremely enthusiastic. So. And the best thing I love too is that I mean this is silly, but LSU has this little kind of forested area by the music department and theater department. Uh, between them and some housing and then some restaurants, at least I hope the restaurants are still there. Um, and the little forest is called the Enchanted Forest. And so uh, if you've ever watched uh, Pitch Perfect, they actually filmed that at LSU. And there's like, you can see some of the, the like this enchanted forest in the backgrounds of some of the scenes. And uh, then having been there of course for three years and I can just imagine how beautiful it would have looked all aglow and with these images and these dancers, you know, kind of hanging from these, from these uh, silks, from these old oak trees, you know, these ancient oak trees. I mean, that, how cool would that have been to see? Yeah. For anyone wondering, it was the Akit initiation scene for Pitch Perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know exactly where that's at. I saw the movie once, but that's like the the title of that portion of it. You can Google it. It's sadly I know but, exactly it, what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Hillary does. <laughs> hey, it's a classic. I saw that in theaters. <laughs> She's like, Aka, please. I know exactly where that is. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was really. It was really beautiful. It came together. Um, we'd been working on it all semester, so it, it's it's a huge relief that it did too. Um, and I, I didn't write all of the music for it. Uh, we're making a video and it'll be out in a week or two. Um, but okay. so if, you, if you hear something you like, you might not want to give me all the credit just yet. Uh, actually, <laughs> I, I worked on it with uh, my pr professor, uh, Dr. Jesse Allison. So we post about half and half and, and we worked on the, the lights and projections and other technical stuff together. But yeah, it oh, turned out really cool. well. Yeah, I can't wait to see a video. I think it's going to be amazing. Yeah, like, oh, I have to watch this. Man, and like working with dancers is such a another world, I think, as a composer, you know, because you like, I don't know. So when I worked with dancers, you know, I'm so used to thinking, okay, these notes and then this is how the rhythm is. And I was kind of, you know, willy nilly with the rhythm, so to speak, you know when I had to write, especially like if I wrote for like the string quartet or something, you know? Um, but if it's, uh, then I had to work with dancers for the, a big project at LSU, of course. And, uh, you know, I had to start thinking, Oh, I got to think beat kind of like, how is a dancer going to respond to the rhythm and meter? And, uh, how is, you know, can I depict imagery in the music at the same time that they're, you know, creating imagery on the stage and make it all work together. It's such a, it's like playing what, like 6D chess or whatever, you know, where you have like the different levels of chess going on at the same time. And you're like, do I put it here? Or am I screwed? You know, what do I do? It's, it's, it's such a feat. Yeah. And that's the, the one thing I, I learned and I, I, I worked with aerialists some um, the previous year and that was, so that, that was kind of like a precursor to the show we eventually did uh, this past week. But yeah, working with dancers is like you said, it's a whole other world. And then there's a whole nother world, which is aerial. Mm -hmm. and, and in terms of composition, they're completely different. So dancers, they have counts and they, you know, they have their own sort of beat structure. Um, they, you know, they, they can listen to the music and they can follow the cues and they can be at this position, especially with, any other number of dancers at a particular time and aerialists have a huge problem with synchronization just this mm -hmm. is the nature of the sport because if you're spinning i mean it's very difficult to track like i mean how many rotations are you going to do per beat it's like how do you also stop 
like without getting down. So like there's a whole lot of like weird nuances to it. Um, and so what I what I sort of found is that they they like very ambient music, music that's very it's less uh, metric, it's more fluid. Uh, and if you can sort of guide them like emotionally, like maybe here's a soft section, and then there's maybe a 30 second to a minute crescendo that leads up to somewhere. And so they really have time to like set themselves up for an a impactful moment. Um, but that I mean, it's it's just very different. And I'd never I I wouldn't have expected that unless I would have actually, you know, been learned until I actually worked with them. Yeah, that's so cool to think about. Well, yeah, that breaks my brain. <laughs> I haven't had the chance to work with dancers yet, but from both from both standpoints, and especially for me, because I have um, synesthesia where I can hear motion, and so for me that like takes it to seven D chess, as Bill would say, <laughs> where it's just like this whole other element of like, okay, I hear that, but nobody else hears that. Okay, what would I add to this? Okay, I don't know. Oh, that'd be really fun to try. You guys are inspiring me. Wait, so you hear motion? Yeah, I know I said that super casually. <laughs> no, I mean. <laughs> so I have um, synesthesia with, um, a lot of people have the like, they hear um, the visual colors. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I have that kind of where like, when I hear music, I see textures. But like for me, when I hit mute on a television, like my brain still is like, hearing these auditory cues of like like I can't even really explain it but so when I like seeing a dancer like I'm just hearing all these strange auditory cues that aren't there. I mean, yeah no I, I wasn't I was just asking for clarification but yeah Ariel yeah. would be great because it's very movement heavy yeah like oh and it's so fast I love watching Ariel's and like yeah or just the silk dancing oh it's so freaking cool but Thank you so much for being here. It's been great talking to you and talking about your music for idols and the, the amazing projects you got, you were working on. Uh, can't wait to hear more hear, hear about your percussion quartet. And uh, of course, see the videos uh, of the silk performances and man, uh, look forward to seeing what happens. You know, you got one more year. Can't wait to see what big things you got going on. Yeah, me too. We're both excited <laughs> and nervous. <laughs> so, yes, it's been a pleasure. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for listening to the Sounds of the World podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. There are links to everything in the episode description and also on our website. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sounds of the World. To show support for Sounds of the World podcast, please join our Patreon, where you can have access to our after-party discussions with guests, discounted merchandise, and even more. If you have any questions, answers, or episode suggestions, please email us at Sounds of the world podcast at gmail.com. Well, Bill, I think I'm going to go have a beer now. Hey, there you go. <laughs>